Well, thanks, Matt, for sharing our scripture reading this morning. We are going to be in Ephesians 4 today, the uh, first six verses, and starting this new series on our our church covenant, which, as Matt said, is is right there on the front of your bulletin, just as a reminder of what we covenant together, what we promise one another as the people of God here at Corinth Baptist Church. And over the next four months, uh, with a break at Easter, we're going to kind of walk line by line through this covenant, just reminding ourselves of what it means to be God's people, to be God's church, to be those who've been redeemed by the blood of Christ, and and how that gives us not just responsibilities toward God in that vertical relationship, but it also gives us responsibilities toward one another in these horizontal relationships that we have in the family of God. And so we're going to jump right in to uh, Ephesians 4 this morning, and and uh, as we kind of work our way through this series, Ephesians 4, which I think is one of the most important chapters in all of the Bible for understanding what the church is meant to be and to do, that, that this is going to serve us as kind of a hub for this entire series. We're going to go to a lot of other passages as we work our way through our covenant, but if, we're going to come back to Ephesians 4 a number of times and just remind ourselves uh, that this is kind of the hub, this is kind of the central idea in Scripture about what it means to be the church and to do what God has called us to do. And so today's message, we're going to look at uh, what it means for us to safeguard our church's unity. We have something that is worthy of being guarded with our lives. And, And we want to see that in scripture this morning and understand why does God place the unity of his church on such a high and holy pedestal. So let's begin with a definition this morning. As we think about unity, again, Matt just shared with us, and I think this is so true, our our culture talks so much about unity in these days, and yet our culture misunderstands the, the true nature of biblical unity as God has designed it. Wayne Grudem gives a great definition that I wanted to share with you this morning. He says simply this, the unity of the church is its degree of freedom from divisions among true Christians. And that's a short sentence with a whole lot in it, but I I want uh, to kind of use this as a jumping off place this morning. And I want to point out a couple of things in his definition that will help us to think rightly uh, about this issue of unity. First of all, I want you to notice the end of the definition that unity must be tied to truth. So it's unity with true Christians. And what we mean by true Christians are those who have placed their faith in Jesus Christ and are living their lives or seeking to live their lives according to the truth of God's word. You can't have unity without truth. And that's one thing that our culture is misunderstanding right now. Our culture doesn't understand that unity without truth is, is, is a falsehood. There's no such thing that truth must be the basis for our unity with one another, as we're going to see in these scriptures this morning. But we also notice in this definition that he talks about unity in terms of a degree. 
It's our degree of freedom in this life. Now, we know that there's coming a day when we are going to be perfectly unified. When we are standing before the throne of Jesus Christ, there will be no more divisions that will exist. There will be perfect unity in that day. Uh, That doesn't mean that we can just sit back in the spiritual lazy boy and go, okay, well, we'll just wait till then to be unified and just deal with our divisions for now. No, what it means is that we are called to strive for the kind of unity that we will have in the hereafter. And that's what he's calling us to in Ephesians chapter 4. In truth, unity is one of the main themes of the book of Ephesians, which is one of the most important books in all the Bible, especially in terms of us understanding the gospel and understanding the church. And so as we think about this this morning, I want to just remind you of a couple of things about the book of Ephesians. Sometimes when we drop down into a passage of scripture in the midst of a book, it's really important for us to understand the context. And so the book of Ephesians begins, it's six chapters long, and it begins with three chapters that are very much about doctrine. Now, I know that's not a very popular word today, the word doctrine, but it's just simply saying the first three chapters are about what we're called to believe as the people of God. In particular, what we're called to believe about the gospel. The first three chapters of Ephesians are, in my opinion, the very best place to go. If you want to understand the gospel of Jesus Christ, read the first three chapters of Ephesians. Paul is laying out the basic tenets of the truth of the gospel. And so the first three chapters are about doctrine or what we believe. The last three chapters are about duty or how we behave. And this pattern is essential in the Christian life. If you miss this, you're going to miss so much of what it means to be a follower of Jesus Christ. That our belief must necessarily precede our behavior. Don't miss that. That is huge in the Christian life. And it's huge for understanding this issue of unity. Again, we can't have unity without truth. Our belief will determine our behavior. God has designed us. In that way. And so that's how Paul lays out this book by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. He begins with our belief, with our doctrine, and he goes to our behavior or our duty, how we how we believe and then how we live. And so we're jumping right down into the first part of Paul talking through our behavior, our response to the gospel as Christians. And we see here from the very beginning, this issue of unity begins to rise to the top. It's not the first time you hear of it. You begin to hear about unity from the very first chapter of Ephesians. But it begins to really rise to the forefront as something that is a treasure to be safeguarded. So I want to lay out the message this morning in three simple statements. We're going to talk about how we can have unity. We're going to talk about why we must safeguard our unity and we're going to talk about the what. What are some of the things that are challenging our unity in these days? So let's begin with the how. God has given us all the provisions necessary for our unity. That's the most important thing for us to understand this morning is that God has given us everything that is necessary for us to be unified in the body of Christ. 
And he begins here, especially in verses 2 and 3, he begins by laying out some of the what I would call the, the graces of the Christian life. Things that God has given to us, tools if you will, gifts that we have been given by God in order that we might be unified. God has given us resources that we might be unified in the body of Christ. And he really gives seven of those here in verses 2 and 3. But I want to focus in on three that seem to rise to the top in, in this list that I, that I want us to consider. First of all, we are graced with lowliness. Now the ESV calls it humility. And this is a Christian grace that was utterly despised in the first century for the Romans and the Greeks. They cared nothing about humility. Humility was the was the attitude of a slave and they believed themselves to be masters. They, they were concerned with what they called the, the man with the mega soul. The one who would elevate himself, who would rise to the top, the, the cream of the crop type guy. That They were concerned with being the one who everyone would know your name and everyone would bow the knee to your glory. That was the goal of life in Roman society. And then Jesus comes along and as Philippians 2 shows us so clearly, Jesus comes along and demonstrates that the highest of the high took the lowest of low places, that he humbled himself and became obedient to the death on the cross so that we could be redeemed. And so the highest of all Christian graces is this grace of humility, which is a gift of God. Because in our sinful nature, we are anything but humble. In my sinful nature, I am all about me, myself, and I. And then the Lord comes in and begins to change our mindset, begins to change our attitude, begins to change our direction. And we begin to see that an other's first mentality is necessary if we're going to experience all the joys that God has for us. So John Calvin said, it's by laying aside haughtiness and a desire for pleasing ourselves. We shall become meek and gentle and acquire that moderation of temper which will overlook and forgive many things in the conduct of our brethren. You see, it starts with humility. It's so needed in our culture that is, by the way, very much like the Greek and Roman culture that was ruling and reigning in Jesus' day. Everybody's looking for their 15 minutes of fame, whether it's on social media or on the TV screen. Everybody's wanting their name to be known. Everybody's wanting to have the power and the authority. And the one who has all power and authority, who sits on the throne above all thrones and is the king above all kings, has set before us a pathway that's characterized by lowliness and humility. And Paul says, I urge you to walk in this, to live your life according to the humility that Christ has given to us. Now, with that humility comes the second of these graces. The end of verse two really lays out the grace of long suffering. 
We've experienced some sufferings that have been fairly unique to us over the last year or so. And it has seemed like a very long and continuing to be a long season. Even in our own church, there's been a season of long suffering here as now as a, as a result of this weekend, we've seen yet another one of our members pass on. It's been, I've done more funerals in the last year than I've done in the last four years combined. And, and we, we remind ourselves that because we live in, in a sin-broken world, that suffering is a part of the equation. And we don't seek to do what our world does and just push suffering out of our lives or at least as far to the fringe as we, as we can get it. We recognize, according to the Word of God, that in our sufferings, God is doing something that He cannot accomplish in any other way because if He could accomplish it in any other way, He would do that. We know that when we look to the cross and we see Jesus crying out to the Father on the night before His crucifixion, Father, if there be any other way than this, let's go to plan B. And yet there was no plan B. That His cross was essential. His suffering was necessary for our salvation. And by the way, church, our suffering is necessary for our sanctification. For our growth in holiness. And we're called to be a people who are long-suffering, who are patient, and who are forbearing with one another. And this is hard. And this is hard because... Most of us are just a little bit annoying. Let's just go ahead and own it. At one time or another, in one relationship or another, you're that guy or that gal that just gets on the nerves of that other individual and we find ourselves in these moments and the Bible is calling us not to run from those relationships but actually to run toward those relationships in love. Not in tolerance like our culture is calling us to, no, but in love, which again is a laying down of my life for the good of the other and being fashioned into the image of Christ through those kinds of long-suffering interactions. So we're graced with Lowliness, we're graced with long suffering. But then notice in verse 3, we're also given by God the grace of longing. And look what he says there about our unity. He says, then, be eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. This word eager here means there's a striving, there's a deep and abiding longing and desire that must be fulfilled through action. So this is not just an affection. This is not just a feeling. This is uh, the kind of longing that propels you to act upon it. And not just one time, There's a, the continual tense here of this verb is saying that you would continually be eager, that you would continually be striving, that you would be running hard after the maintenance of this 
unity. Pastor Tony Morita said so well, unity is active, not passive. In other words, it's not just going to happen. There's a part we have to play in this picture. We should be zealous. I love that word, zealous to maintain unity. Notice this, though. We do not work to create unity. We work to keep it. It's God who unites us. Don't forget that. We're going to see more of that in this next section, but, but we need to remind ourselves it's not our job to create unity. It's our job to keep it, to maintain it, to steward it as the gift of God that it is. So again, as Grant read earlier for us in our service this morning, Psalm 133, behold how good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell together in unity. And then the pictures that would have been so beautiful and precious to the Israelites and the reminder that it's there in that place of unity that the Lord has commanded this blessing of life forevermore. So how? We've seen the provisions for our unity, the gifts of God given to us that we might maintain this unity. Let's talk about the why. Why is unity so important? And I I want to look at the premise of our unity. What's the foundation? What's the grounds? What's the basis for which we are called to unity and called to maintain this unity even to the point of suffering and loss? First premise of our unity in verse 4 is that we are one family. First premise of our unity is that we are one family. It says there is one body and one spirit. The one body, whenever he uses the word body in the book of Ephesians, he's always talking about the church. And when he talks about the church, he talks about it in the context of it being a family. That's when we move into Ephesians chapter 5 and you see uh, him talking about husbands and their and the relationships with their wives, this marital relationship, the, the core of the family. He's using that as an analogy to talk about the church. He's very clear in his instructions to husbands and wives that he's saying, this is a picture, you're picturing in your family what should be taking place in the church. And the same thing is happening right here. He says there's one body, one family into which we are called. And that word called is so rich. It it takes us back to chapter 1, verse 8, which we don't have time to read this morning. But you can go back and look at what is this calling all about. But I think uh, John Gill, one of the early Puritans, voiced it so well. He said, we are called out of darkness into light. Notice the discrepancy, the, the difference here that's been made. We are called out of bondage into liberty. We're called out of the world and from the company and conversation of the men of it into the fellowship of Christ. And then don't, don't miss this and his people. And his people to the participation of the grace of Christ here. And to his kingdom and glory hereafter. We need not miss that church. We need not miss the reality that there is something God wants for us here. And there is something that God has for us hereafter. 
And the two ought not be so separated in our minds that we distinguish them from one another. The one, the here, is meant to lead us to the other, the hereafter. And so we are, the first premise for our unity is that we are one family. The second premise in verse 5 is that we share one faith. We share one faith. He says, you were called to one hope that belongs to your call. And then verse 5, one Lord, the Lord Jesus Christ, one faith and one baptism. Right there in the center of this word, there's one faith that we share as the people of God. And by the way, it's the faith. It's not just a faith or your faith. Your understanding of the things of God, it's the faith. It's what Jude was talking about in in verse 3 of Jude chapter 1. He says, Beloved, although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend. That's a similar word to the striving here in Ephesians 4, to the eagerness here in Ephesians 4, to contend, to strive after, to fight for what? The faith. Once for all delivered to the saints. Again, unity cannot be separated from truth. And the truth we're talking about here is the faith once for all delivered to the saints. What are some of the basics of that truth? Some of the basics are these. That we believe the one true and living God holy and perfect in all of his attributes is the creator of all things and he created everything good he created us as people in his image designed by him to display his glory in the world that he created But rather than displaying His glory, we instead chose to rebel against our holy God, to sin against Him. We chose to go our own way and do our own thing rather than following what He had given us to be and to do. And because of our sinful rebellion, we were deserving of His righteous wrath. But God, in His great mercy, chose not to treat us as our sins deserve. And from the very moment that sin entered into the world, there also came to the world the promise of God that a Redeemer was coming. That one would come who would crush the head of the serpent that led man into sin and that He would restore all things the way God intended them to be. And that Redeemer is Jesus Christ. That Jesus came, God in the flesh came and dwelt among us full of grace and truth. And though He had no sin of His own, He became sin for us when He went to the cross. So that through Him, through His sacrificial death and His substitutionary atonement, that through Him we might become the righteousness of God. He came to set all things back in the right direction and He will be the one who will bring everything full circle back to the good place that God intended and we understand through the scriptures that our rightful response to him is one of repentance and faith turning from our sin and trusting in christ 
These are some of the basics of the faith that unites us. That we believe in a holy God. We believe in the sinfulness of man. We believe in the redemption of Christ. And we believe that our response to these things is to repent of our sin and believe in Jesus. And the promise of God is that everyone who calls in the name of the Lord Jesus will be saved. When we're talking about the faith, when we're talking about what unites us, that's what we're talking about. And that's what Paul is elevating here in Ephesians 4. He's saying, these are things that are worthy of your unity in spite of everything that might divide you. And finally, the main premise here that Paul gets to at the end of verse 6 is that we only have one family and one faith, but our unity is based in this reality that we have one Father. Notice here what he's done. He began by saying there's one Spirit. He went on to say there's one Lord, the Lord Jesus Christ. And then he ends the list by saying there's one Father. Do you see what he's doing here? He's bringing into our view the Godhead. Our triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. The three persons of the Trinity who are one, who are the very picture of the kind of unity that he's calling us to as his people. You see, church, here's why unity is essential in the church. This is not optional. Here's why unity is essential in the church. Because without it, we cannot display the person and character of our God. He created us to display His glory, His personhood, His image. And God has revealed Himself in three persons who are one. And I know we don't understand the fullness of the triune God, but we know that it's here in Scripture again and again and again. You'll never see the word Trinity, but you'll see descriptions of the Trinity all over the place if you're watching as you're walking through the Word. And it's right here in these verses. In verse 4, you see the Spirit. In verse 5, you see the Son. In verse 6, you see the Father. And they are the reason. He is the reason why we're called to unity. Because we cannot display the glory of God as long as divisions exist. It's what Jesus prayed for us. In John 17, in His high priestly prayer, Jesus prayed And he said, I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world praying for us. He said, but I'm coming to you. Holy Father, keep them in your name, which you have given me. Why? That they may be one, even as we are one. That they may be united, even as we are united. That they might Display the glorious reality of the triune God. The three in oneness might be displayed in the church. Jesus is praying that we might rightfully reflect the character and glory of God. The God by whose name we are called. The God by whose blood we are saved. 
And so let's finish this morning talking about some of the things that would threaten our unity. If we would be called to safeguard something, does that not imply that there are threats to it? And so this morning, let's talk about some of the threats to our unity. What? What is the plague upon our unity? And I want to go ahead and say this is not an exhaustive list. And I know I'm probably going to step in some dangerous areas in the next 10 minutes. I'm going to pray for your grace. But I want to speak to some of the things that I see are threats to the unity of the church today. So when Paul says be eager to maintain the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace, we need to see that which would threaten to divide us so that we can stand steadfast against the schemes of the devil. By the way, before we get into this, let me just say this. We need to understand the schemes of the devil. Ephesians 6 says that. We don't need to be focused on the devil, but we need to understand his schemes. 1 Peter 5, 8 says, like a roaring lion, the devil is looking for someone to devour. If you were to go and and to study how a lion hunts, here's the primary tactic by which a lion hunts his prey. As he's going after a pack of gazelles, He doesn't go right in to the heart of that pack looking for his prey. He looks for the outliers. He looks for the stragglers. He looks for the ones who are straying from the flock. And he picks off the ones on the outside because he knows if I go right into the midst of that flock of gazelles, I'm likely to get kicked and beaten down by all those gazelles coming together. So he goes after picking off the ones on the fringes. Church, hear me. This is one of the reasons why our gatherings are so essential. Because the devil loves to pick off those on the fringes. This is one of the reasons why our coming together as the people of God in physical presence is not optional because the reality is we have a tendency to stray we sing it don't we prone to wander lord i feel it prone to leave the god i love this is why one of the many reasons why we must continue to gather and to worship christ in person Three plagues upon our unity that I want to talk about for the next few minutes. First of all, church, we must not divide over personal preferences. And I know we say amen to that, but let's just go ahead and put it out on the table. This is our tendency. Because I've got preferences. I've got things that I like and ways I like to do things. I've got things that feel right to me and that seem right to me. Then I think everybody else ought to agree with me. And yet if everyone agreed with me, that would not be unity. That would be uniformity. And that's not what God's calling us to. So we can't afford in these days to make divisions along some of the lines that we've made them in the past. We can't afford to divide over musical preferences. We can't afford to divide over time preferences. 
We can't afford to divide over preferences related to our dress or preferences related to the kind of music that we listen to or the kind of movies that we watch. We can't afford to divide over things that that are not chapter and verse in the Word of God. We must be careful that we don't elevate our personal preferences to a level of truth that should divide us. But this is the danger in the church today. Seen it all over the landscape. Well, I want church to be this way. Here's the only question we need to be asking. What does God desire for our church? That's the only question that matters. So, Pastor, are you saying my personal preferences don't matter? In relation to what I just laid before you, that's exactly what I'm saying. And we need to recognize that in humility, humility calls us to take our personal preferences and not yet throw them in the garbage can, but at least put them really close. We have a building across the, across the way, across the road over here that I call the pre-dumpster because that's where we put all of our stuff that probably ought to have gone in the dumpster. But somebody along the line said, hey, we might use that. So we put it in the pre-dumpster. And then about five, every five years or so, Henry and I were the last ones to do this. We go in and we clean out that pre-dumpster and we throw it in the dumpster. Because we never used that thing that somebody said we would probably use again. And here, here's where I want to encourage you to put your personal preferences. Put them in the pre-dumpster. That doesn't mean that they're unimportant. That doesn't mean that there won't ever be a time when those need to be brought out and put on the table. But it does mean that in subjection to Christ and in out of the love that we have for God and for one another, we are not going to be ruled by our preferences. And this is hard. I'm just going to say from where I'm standing right here, this is hard. Because it requires us to die to ourselves. Setting personal preferences aside requires a death. And it's hard. Secondly, we must not divide over racial reconciliation. I know so many conversations that are happening along these lines today. The irony of the talk of racial reconciliation happening in our nation right now is that the talk of racial reconciliation seems to be adding to the divide, not decreasing it. Because our world doesn't understand biblical unity. Again, erasing the differences is not the answer. But that's what our culture is trying to do, not just in race, but in gender and in class. This move towards socialism that we're seeing all over our nation today, it's a move toward uniformity, not unity. And it will not bring joy. It will not bring about the kind of flourishing life that God desires for us. He loves our diversity. And yes, let's say it straightforwardly this morning. Yes, there is a racial divide in our country. We cannot afford to ignore that. But we also cannot afford to follow worldly mindsets and worldly ways of resolving that issue. 
The Bible is thoroughly sufficient for the issue of racial reconciliation. But I'm watching far too many churches and far too many pastors running to other texts and other experts and other ways of trying to close the racial gap. And I want to say to us, when we start to add to or take away from or look to other places than the Word of God for the redemption of what our sin has caused, we're in deep trouble. And I'm seeing it all over the face of the church today. And we ought to be as desirous for racial reconciliation as anybody on the planet. But we ought to recognize it's not going to happen through worldly means. It's not going to happen through man's theories. It's not going to happen through simple reparations or trying to undo history. It's only going to happen when we recognize that what unites us in Jesus Christ is greater than skin color. It's greater than class. It's greater than gender differences. It's greater than political divides. What unites us in Christ is greater than these things. And therefore we can be unified in the truth of the gospel even as we continue to grapple with some of the differences culturally and racially and otherwise. It's necessary. It's hard. It's hard, church. It's hard, but it's necessary. That's why we must be eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. And finally, if those two weren't controversial enough, let's get real personal for a minute. Church, we must not divide over masks and mandates. Now, I know as soon as I put this out here, it starts to raise up some angst within us because these things have been so divisive in the life of the church. And here's what I'm saying to us. God is setting before us a moment to say, Look to the cross. Are you really going to be divided over a face mask? We got to see it in context, church. Let me, let me give you an illustration of what I'm saying this morning. Let's imagine a scenario in which, and kids don't get your hopes up, let's imagine a scenario in which I gave each of my kids a thousand dollars. Now, I'm not doing that because I don't have a thousand bucks to give them, but if I did, Imagine a scenario in which I gave each of my kids a thousand dollars. And then five minutes later, I find them arguing over a quarter they found in our couch. Just take it in for a moment. I just gave them riches. A thousand dollars that they can do with whatever they please and i find them moments later arguing over a quarter that they found in the couch that's what it looks like for us from our father's perspective when we are arguing over face masks and the response to governmental mandates and i know the word is is recommendations now whatever word we're using just let it be but what i'm saying is when we allow ourselves to be divided over whether or not someone wears a mask or whether or not someone abides by a governmental mandate what we are saying is what jesus did at the cross is not sufficient for our unity 
I know that sounds harsh, but I'm wanting to get a warning out for us and even speaking to my own heart because I've seen in my own sinful heart the potential for division to arise over a piece of fabric with two ear loops. It's a quarter in a couch, folks. It's going to mean nothing in relation to eternity. And we must learn to love one another enough to say we refuse to be divided over this. We refuse to allow ourselves to be divided over this because what unites us is so much more grand and glorious. The riches of glory have been given to us through Jesus Christ. How in the world could we allow things so trivial to become so divisive? And it's hard. Because a lot of us feel passionately about these issues. On one side or the other. And I'm saying this to us. Feel passionately. But subject your passions to the one who died for you on the cross. And what I just said to you is hard. It's easier just not to care. I'm not calling you to not care. Care deeply. But subject your feelings, your emotions, your passions, your stand, your view, your beliefs. Subject those to the Lord and ask Him to teach you how to love those that you disagree with. Not how to get away from them. See, my fear is that we're going to end up in a place where we're going to now we're going to have the mask-wearing church and the non-mask-wearing church, just like we had the traditional church and the contemporary church. That's not the answer, folks. He's called us to recognize there's something greater happening in this moment, and it has nothing to do with a COVID pandemic. It has to do with our God calling us to an Ephesians 4 type of unity that will demonstrate to a lost and dying world that this gospel really means something. It really does something. And so finally, all of you, 1 Peter 3, 8, all of you, church, have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. I know it's easier said than done. But let's remember who said it. He who called you is faithful. He will not leave us or forsake us. He is calling us to something greater and deeper than what the surface issues would seem to indicate. Father, I make this prayer for us today. Lord, give us unity of mind. We don't all have to think the same way about every issue, but may we be united in the reality that our minds have been captured by the gospel. 
Give us sympathy for one another. That we might desire to understand. Not, not that we would just avoid difficult conversations, but that we might truly have the desire to understand where one another are coming from. Give us a brotherly love. Remind us that we are family because our Father and His Son did what was necessary to bring us out of darkness and into light. Out of death to life. Out of the world and into Your kingdom, Father. And so, Father, I pray, teach us humility. Help us to see lowliness as the greatest of all attributes that we could have. And when combined with love, it sets before a lost and dying world a picture that they cannot ignore. You have given us opportunity, Father, to dwell in a unity that those outside of Christ cannot have, but that we can certainly beckon them into. But Father, forgive us. Forgive us for being divided over things that have no eternal value. Forgive us for prioritizing personal preferences and our political views and our feelings and our understandings of how things should go and what it means to love and what it means to protect and what it means. Father, may we subject all those things to what you have said. May your truth be the source of our unity. And may we be reminded continually of Christ, the author and the perfecter of our faith, his joy, his sacrifice, his blood, which covers all of our sins and brings us together in one family called by your name, Holy Father. Unite us in these truths. We pray in Jesus' name.